everybody. Happy Tuesday. It's Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Happy first day of school for those who celebrated today. Not my kids, though, because strangely, in the Halton Board of Education, today is a PA day, which seems like like a waste. I don't know. If I was a kid, I, I think I might want that in the middle of the year. But instead, they're starting their school year tomorrow. Instead of today, I'm sure there's there's a reason for it, but uh, it doesn't make too much sense to me. All right, um, I told you we were headed for a fun September in Blue Jays land. It was going to be intense, and yeah, the playoffs are cool um, because it's live and die, and I guess with this new wildcard format, you're guaranteed at least two games of live and die. Well, we got a whole month of live and die, and the Blue Jays have been living recently, just barely though, doing just enough not to be totally infuriating, taking the... Three of the first four games, at least, against the Rockies and A's. Rangers, they continue to flounder. And and either they or the Astros are going to continue to lose ground today as they're playing each other. Rangers, though, 4-13 and in their last 17. So a half game back are the Blue Jays of that final wildcard spot. One game back in the loss column. Uh, Let's talk to a man who is guiding you through these games on uh, Blue Jay Central for the A's series. It's Caleb Joseph. How's it going, man? What's up, Ben? What's up? Uh, n- nothing much. Just watching uh, very important baseball games in in the month of September that that uh, ha- have a lot of import. Um, Blue Jays, a-, a team that's pretty good, but missing their starting shortstop, starting third baseman, and starting catcher, but playing now after, I guess, yesterday's win over the A's, the, the worst team in Major League Baseball is the A's break a tie with uh, the Royals. And also, it should be said, Caleb, a Blue Jays team that's been rightly uh, criticized for their hitting with runners in scoring position all season, but since August 2nd, 337 with runners in scoring position that leads Major League Baseball. Is it all coming together for this Blue Jays team right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the guys that have come up from Buffalo, they have contributed marvelously in the absence of those that you just mentioned, and that's exactly what the Blue Jays need. They need guys coming in from Buffalo, not just to be replacement level, to, but to play above and beyond, and they have done just that. I've been so impressed with Horowitz, with Ernie Witt, of course, David Schneider coming up, and it's the lift that this team needs, and you saw how important it was to score a bunch of runs in Colorado. Of course, that's a pitcher's park where so many late leads are just not safe because you feel like you're never out of it when you're playing in Colorado, but they have been playing some very good baseball. Taking three out of the last four has been exactly what they needed. Hopefully they can continue that. Yeah. Uh, four to four would have been good. And, and the, the, there was a game there that was gettable. Uh, it slipped through their fingers and, and yeah, uh, Ernie Clement has been uh, more than good enough. Uh, and even d- defensively that I guess he's allowed to have a couple of miscues in a game that they dropped. Hey, I was going through your baseball reference page, as I always do. Like, before I have you on, I always go through your baseball reference page. I, I don't know. I'm a nut like that. Uh, um, but I was like, this guy, he's played for so long. And, and despite the fact that you spent uh, your career in the American League, you must have played in Colorado. You never played there. Did you, like, did, did the Orioles never make the trip to, to Colorado when you were there? Or, or like, what happened? You, you never played in Colorado. 2016, I was injured, and I missed the trip. Um, I I was there in 19 with uh, the Diamondbacks, and uh, I 
was there one other time, but I was not officially like on the field. So yeah, yeah it was one of one of two that I I did not cross off the list. Yeah, what's the other one? Bush Stadium. Um, I'm very upset about that too because I enjoyed watching the Cardinals growing up. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, and I'm sure you would have loved to hit in in Denver too. Like that ballpark, it is. I mean, I guess it's the same sport. It, it certainly doesn't look like it in large part. And and what I said going into the series last week is that like you you think of Denver and Coors Field being some launching pad for home runs, and certainly there's a lot of home runs. But like there's twice as many triples at that ballpark as any other. And it it's all it's like on the pitching end where the breaking balls don't break the way you expect them to. It's not necessarily the ball travels further in the air, which I guess it nominally does, but they, they have humidors. Like, what, what, in, in the times that you were there and, and watching a team prepare, like, what did you see as far as the, the pitcher's ability to adapt to the conditions? Oh, yeah. I asked a bunch of questions when I was in Arizona. Of course, they're in the National League West with the Rockies. Guys have been going there for years and years, and it was just that late bite on the slider on the breaking ball that everybody kept talking about. And you really had to kind of watch yourself when it came to conditioning. And I can attest, I, I was up there and uh, I didn't play a game up there, but I played 18 holes up there and I yeah. walked it and I was absolutely exhausted after that round of golf, having not even sweat a single droplet because the weather was perfect, but you could just feel the difference in altitude. And as a hitter, you've got to be really conscious of, of not getting into kind of bad habits in terms of trying to lift because you do know that that ball is going to travel. Uh, you got to stay into good habits so that when you go on the road, you don't get into hitting lazy fly balls. But it's, it's both pitcher and hitter detrimental if you don't really know what you're doing. But I think for the most part, it is, uh, it is mental up there. I think Joe Siddle said it perfectly during the uh, the game broadcast, a lot of that with pitchers is mental. You know it's not going to break as much, and so there's already sort of a built-in excuse. Yeah. Um, and so when you're not exactly committed to the pitch, that to me is the worst pitch you can throw, a pitch that a pitcher isn't fully committed to, uh, not knowing or not sure exactly how it's going to bite or where it's going to end up. And so that is what creates a lot of problems in Colorado sometimes. Yeah, but they did escape with the the series victory. I, I guess you can't sweep every series. It'd be nice to sweep one of them, though. Uh, and perhaps that's coming in, in Oakland against this A's team that they took the first game uh, against yesterday. Although they didn't, I mean, he got into the game. They didn't start their best player, though. David Schneider, who I tweeted about, who you, you know, opened up. The, I think it was one of the first things you were talking about with Jamie Campbell after the game that, that this guy's been so hot that, you know, m- might be an idea to ride the hot hand there. And, and that being said, you know, Kevin Biggio had a big hit, especially off a of lefty too, which was uh, perhaps not expected. Blue Jays had an off day, like, not that long ago. It was last Thursday. It's also David Schneider, who's, who's not, you know, 39 at last check. I understand that, like, you want to mix every everybody in there, but we're running out of runway here. I, I was shocked not to see him in the lineup yesterday, Caleb. Yeah, so was I. And there's a lot to unpack here. It's not just as simple as, well, David Schneider should have played third base and Biggio shouldn't have uh, have played. I absolutely would have had Biggio in my lineup. I would have moved Whit Merrifield to left field. David Schneider would have played second base. And then you pick your center fielder between Barsho yep. and – um, Tiermeyer. That's how I would have done it. Reason why. Here is exactly why I think Schneider should be in the lineup. 
I think this series and the Kansas City series is where you go for full-on offense because you're not playing in Colorado. You're playing in Rogers Center, and you're playing in Oakland, where if you punish a team like the Oakland A's, like the Kansas City Royals, for a five- or six-run first or second inning, they will quit. It's not the case in Colorado. There's never a lead that those guys up there don't feel like they can come back with. I realize that, yes, there are some defensive match- matchups that you like. There's some, there's some offensive matchups that you like in terms of uh, patterns. The pitcher has a certain pattern, and it might not match up perfectly with that hitter's pattern. But what I see from Schneider is a guy who's made a lot of adjustments. He is the hottest hitter on the team, and I'm playing an offensive-style series for the next two series because – I want to try and rest as many of those arms in the bullpen as I can. I feel like they are starting to trend downward, and it's not their fault. They have been in so many tight games. They have had so many up-downs that those type of high-pressure, high-leverage pitches start to wear on the player. Trust me, I've been there. I've heard guys talk about it. You can look at their innings. Their innings might not be uh, as, as stacked as you would think. But it's those up-downs, it's those high-pressure, high-intense pitches and innings that these guys have been throwing all year that really, really starts to break the body down. And so for me, you have a perfect opportunity right here with the Oakland A's and the Kansas City Royals to just punish them after the first two or three innings, make them quit, and then you can start to put in maybe a Francis and a Jay Jackson to eat up the rest of the four or five innings. And at that point, if you want to strengthen your defense, then you can put in Kiermaier or Varsho, start to kind of configure it around. But I think it's more than just put Schneider in because he's hot. I'm looking four and five moves down the line here, and I understand they, they have a game plan. I just really feel like you can kill a couple birds with, with one stone with keeping him in the lineup, getting out to a huge lead, and hopefully resting some of those bullpen guys as well. Dude, it, that makes a ton of sense, and I, I couldn't agree more. I'm, I mean, I'm so, I'm so willing to infuse offense into this lineup that, you know, when Spencer Horowitz was, was called up on September 1st, and that was before he hit his first career major league home run, I, Spencer Horowitz has played left field in AAA this season. I don't know what kind of a defender he is go. there. Like, I know he's... I, 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 here's what I can guarantee you. He's not Dalton Varsho in left field, but can he do an adequate enough job there but be an offensive up? Uh, I, I think it's quite possible. And I think my ideal lineup against righties has Davis Schneider at third base, Whit Merrifield at second base, and, and, and Spencer Horowitz in left field with, with Brandon Belt as, as the DH. I mean, I, I, I imagine you can't speak to his defense either because you haven't seen it because, yeah, I mean, who... We're too busy watching the Blue Jays to be watching the Bisons on, on a daily basis. But what have you seen offensively out of Spencer Horowitz? Yeah, I love what he brings, and I think you make a great point. For me, the next two series is not about run prevention. It's about run creation. I mean, if you're scared of the Oakland A's out hitting you because you had poor defense, you're, you're, in, you're in a bad spot. If yep. you're scared that the Royals are going to outslug you all over the place and you don't have the right defensive configurations to win a game, especially in the outfield, I think you're up a creek without a paddle. I, and so I'm going personally, just an opinion, I'm going for offense in those situations. And like I said, you could put Spencer Horowitz in left field. 
You could uh, you could you could have Vladdy play first, and you could DH Snyder if you don't want Snyder at second base on the infield. There are a lot of pieces to this puzzle, and we got to remember too they did win the game. So I don't want to be that guy that comes in and starts hammering after yeah. you know a win because they did win, and that's the ultimate goal, and it and it worked. I just think there's greater things that you can accomplish. Uh, it's mainly the pitching and the bullpen. If you can get out to a 15 run lead. You can rest Jose Barrios. You can rest starters. You mm-hmm. can pull them out. You can. You have flexibility there. These guys need that type of rest, even with off days built in. But getting back to Horowitz, I've, I've loved what I've seen. He is not afraid to use all parts of the field. That's really, I'm not going to say unheard of for a young hitter, but when you get up to the big leagues, the first thing you really want to do is, is slug because it, you just feel like that's the way that you're going to stay. It's just how the game is right now. It's how they pay you. And so if they're paying you that way, you're probably going to stay if you can slug. But for him to be able to shorten up, put together a great at-bat, use the opposite field. I love the opposite field double he had late in the game. That was just a very sweet swing. I love the way that he actually holds the bat. It reminds me very much of Jordan Alvarez Mm. once he gets kind of loaded up. And to me, Alvarez might be the top one or two best left-handed hitters in the big leagues, and I just love the way he fires from that position. The bat is on plane for a long time. Uh, he's played some really good defense over there at first base, too. He hasn't been a liability. I, I like what he provides. Yeah, no, I've, I've been a, a huge fan so far in limited sample. Um, but, yeah, he's been almost everything we hoped he would be coming out of uh, AAA in, in a weird season in the international league where offense like the average ops is 800 with the the automatic strike zone but yeah i mean considering he's a 24th round pick considering that davis schneider's a 28th round pick despite the fact that they're having great triple a seasons i mean we saw it with schneider he had the best start ever like in in blue jays history with that series in at fenway park and then he plays a little bit after that and then he misses like 11 games where he, he didn't get into the lineup as a as a starting player and then finally, you know, gets another opportunity and starts hitting again. Like, how difficult is it for these guys to convince, you know, management, I suppose, or or the manager that they are legit players con- considering the pedigree, considering, you know, they haven't seen them all season long? Yeah, it's a difficult spot to be in. And right now the Blue Jays are just trying to win games, period, no matter how they can do it they're going to try and win a game and there's so much going on and a lot of it is out of the players hands all you can do is perform when called upon and i guess you know the biggest thing that i fear is when you have a really hot player when you don't have those consistent reps which i'm not saying schneider has it he's had consistent reps Mm -hmm. but when you start to lose that consistency of repetition it's harder to continue what you're doing especially when you're coming from a team in Buffalo where you played every single day. I've said it numerous times on this show. One of the hardest things I had to do was make the transition from an everyday minor league player into more of a platoon major leaguer. It's already incredibly difficult to play and hit in the big leagues, much less now for the first time in your career, you're trying to figure out how to stay ready, how to stay prepared, uh, by not playing every day. It's the first time you've, you've not played every single day. So there's a lot going on inside that player and what he's trying to figure out. I, I just love what these kids have been able to do coming up. They've had to be better than advertised, and mm-hmm. for the most part, they all have. And it's, it's been a really great story. If they came in and dropped the ball 
and have not done what they've done. I'm I'm not even sure if the if the Jays are are even three three and a half four games out. I they they would be they'd be in a tough spot. But they these young kids have come in done such a great job. No, they've been spectacular. And you know, and Vladdy got on base four times yesterday. Although the extra base power is not there for him, man. He is such a I know you're not on Twitter, even though you have a Twitter account. I don't think you've tweeted in, like, years and years and years. But uh, let me let me give you some insight into what's happening on Twitter right now, Caleb. A lot of discussion yes. about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And every time he comes up in a big spot um, and doesn't come through. But, I mean, for the most part, if you just go by the numbers, he actually has come through in, in clutch moments. He's hitting over 300 with uh, runners in scoring position. And I think the average is even higher with two outs. But, yeah, the, the power hasn't been there in those situations and just the overall numbers this season, and even when we thought maybe he was turning it around the final month of the season, well, since August 1st, the OPS is 760, which is pretty on par with what he's done all season long. Like, I, I, we, we know there's more in there for Vladimir Guerrero Jr., but, like, what, what is a fair way to discuss what, what's happened with him and, and the type of season he's having this year? Uh, great question. It, it seems like... Every single time I'm on somebody's show, Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s name has come up, and rightfully so, because the fans in Toronto expect something similar to the 2021 season he had, where he was one of the best players in the big leagues. And it's tough. It's really tough to continue to be that guy year in, year out, which is why the perennial perennial, um, MVP-caliber type seasons of a Mike Trout, of a Shohei Otani, Aaron Judge, they are just absolutely spectacular because it's so difficult to do it over and over and over. When Vladdy has a plan, when Vladdy is on time, and when Vladdy meets ball to barrel in the right zone, A, it has liftoff, B, it is crushed, and C, he gets a great result. And for me, there's nothing physically wrong with Vladdy. There's nothing mechanically wrong with Vladdy. It's all about how many times can Vladdy get off his A swing, his number one A swing, because his A swing is not a 115-mile-an-hour ground ball to the left side. His A swing is a line drive towards the center of the field somewhere in the air. And when you can't get off your A swing, it tells me that you're probably in between pitches. You might not have as as laser-focused of a plan as you want. It tells me you're trying to do a little bit too much. It tells me a lot of different things, and I think at certain points of the season, he's had kind of all of those different factors weaving in and out, and I think if you look back at 21, he was really, really good at hitting the fastball. He was really good. He was on time. He was ready. He was looking for it. He adjusted to the breaking balls, and for me, a lot of the time, he's looking breaking ball. They're feeding him quite a few breaking balls, still more fastballs than any other pitch. But for me, he goes up quite a, quite a bit looking for that breaking ball. And I feel like when he is absolutely on his best, he's ready and able to hit velocity, and he's on time because when he's on time, his A swing comes out. His A swing comes out. It's in the air. That's when you see the huge power numbers that everybody wants. Yeah. No, I, I, I've seen the same thing. It just feels like he's getting beat by fastballs. And even you know, the base hits going to the right side, uh, is him being late on fastballs and hitting them to, to right field. Uh, perhaps that changes at some point. But, yeah, it does feel like a pitch selection issue. All right, before we let you go, we always talk golf, you and I, uh, even though we've never played before. <laughs> so I gave away, like, between five and ten strokes, uh, like, in and around the green yesterday. And today, 
I just pulled the trigger and bought myself the new 58-degree lob wedge. Is it ever the club? Like, is it ever just, hey, the club sucks and you just need a new club? Great question. I've been saying it's the club for 15 years now, and maybe it is the Indian and it's not the arrow. Now, if you're working with some 25-year-old wedge that has no grooves and no bounce and you don't know how That's to use it. the bounce, then, yeah, maybe it is the club. But if, you know, now that you've got this nice wedge, brand-new wedge, now you're going to run out of excuses. And for me, I like having a couple excuses in the back pocket every <laughs> single time so that I can't be blamed. So I think I think you've made a mistake getting that brand-new club. That's a great, great point. Because, yeah, I, I, I was nodding along when you were like, oh, the old club, this, yeah, I got no grooves. That was a garbage. Like, I literally just found it in the back of my shed after I, blow, I broke my lob wedge at the end of last season. But then, yeah, you also raised the specter of uh, no excuses, which I, I don't like. I love... <laughs> to have some excuses so i'm i'm totally screwed uh caleb uh thanks as always pal uh we'll be uh watching tonight you got it sounds good thanks man all right there's caleb joseph blue jay central getting set for game two or three between the blue jays and oakland a's the only night game you don't often see it you know series on the west coast where you only get one late night and it is tonight chris bassett against the lefty ken waldachuk here's what i can guarantee you is that David Schneider is going to be in the lineup tonight. Boy, I saw... I don't know how much I should reference Twitter conversations or Twitter discourse. It is still the um, social media of record. But I was getting some pushback, limited, but some who raised the idea that, hey, David Schneider's a, a, you know, adjusting to major league life and the travel schedule that it entails and that guy needs a day off to to make sure that he's available for big series coming up against the his no no desperation is is something that this organization has talked about it's something that Kevin Gossman has talked about explicitly talking about how the the batters on this team need to show more desperation need to be a little bit more desperate and I don't know if that's a great idea. Like, it, it does seem like a sport where you need to try harder. Here's where it does need to exist, though, in the lineups, in the roster moves. And we've seen that sparingly. I, I, I get it. Ernie Clement has done a, a, a great job, I suppose. And Mason McCoy, I guess, has done the things asked of him. There are higher upside, riskier, more desperate moves that could have been made. They weren't made in the form of Arelvis Martinez or Addison Barger. Playing Davis Schneider every single game the rest of the season is urgency. It's managing with urgency because you need urgency because the situation is urgent. You're a game back in the loss column, the final wildcard spot in the American League, and... Okay, is David Schneider going to have an OPS of 1,200 for the rest of his career? Boy, that would be awesome. I guess I, I wouldn't rule it out. I'd say it's unlikely, though. Like, is he going to be an MVP candidate? I'd say it's unlikely. But right now, who's seeing the ball better than him? And this is such a sport. Man, was Joe Siddle always tells me, it's not who you're playing, it's when you're playing him. And right now... Davis Schneider is, is playing as well as any member of the Toronto Blue Jays. It's not always going to be the case. There'll be a lot of times where, hey, Davis Schneider needs to come out of the lineup 
because he doesn't look like he's swinging it well. Maybe he needs a, a day off to just regroup and get back to what we know uh, and expect out of him. But that's not right now. Right now, this guy's been, as Caleb rightly points out, the reason why the Blue Jays are only a half game back of a playoff spot, not three or four. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, the Baltimore Orioles only three and a half games up in the Tampa Bay Rays for top spot in the American League East, and the Rays have a like much better run differential. All of a sudden, that, that Rays team could be the one that ends up winning the American League East. Either way, um, if the Blue Jays do end up making that final wildcard spot, that's the place to be where you would avoid the American League East winner, you would avoid the American League West winner, you would get the Minnesota Twins in the first round, unless Cleveland has some incredible comeback. Although yesterday, in Lucas Giolito's first start, they were throwing a position player at the Twins in the sixth inning. Maybe we'll get to that later on uh, with John Morosi. But on the other side, we are zoning in on game one of week one of the NFL season coming up on Thursday. We'll talk to Peter King of NBC Sports and Football Morning in America next. The Fan Drive Time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Covering the Blue Jays from an analytical perspective. Jays Talk Plus with Blake Murphy. Be sure to subscribe and download Jays Talk on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. In just over 50 hours until we watch the Detroit Lions go into Arrowhead, play Patrick Mahomes and the defending Super Bowl champs as they open up week one of the NFL season on Thursday night. And uh, so that means we're running out of time for everybody to feel good about their preseason picks. Uh, if you are interested, so here's, here's how Vegas views this upcoming season. Um... Last year, the, the Bills were the preseason favorites to, to win the Super Bowl. The Buccaneers were second. The Chiefs were third. Well, this year, smartly, I think Vegas has come around to the Kansas City Chiefs that they, they might be a good bet. Uh, they are favored to go back-to-back for the first time since the Patriots did in uh, the 05 Super Bowl 2004 season. All right, let's talk to Peter King of NBC Sports and Football Morning in America in his latest column. He has his own picks out. Uh, thanks for doing this, Peter. How's it going? Hey, Ben, you know, I, I'm one of the geniuses who didn't pick the Chiefs <laughs> and didn't pick them to even get to the Super Bowl. And I, I bet you would find in the last 19 seasons, since the Patriots won two in a row, I bet you would find in the last 19 seasons that I, I'm just going to guess, I bet half that the team that was, had the best odds the next year to win the Super Bowl was the defending champ. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I don't think it. I don't think it means anything that Kansas City is favored to win this year, because I think Vegas does that every single year. Well, except for last year, because I like I said, the Bills were preseason favorites. Who you have going to the Super Bowl? Not to spoil everything, yeah. And people should check out your column as they always do on NBC Sports. But yeah, you have the Bills losing to the Eagles in the Super Bowl, which is an inter- interesting spot for a Bills team. Who's yeah, it's it's not like they're a long shot; they're a third favorite. But they were the favorites last year, and I guess when you go from the favorites to third favorites, and you get blown out in the fashion that they did at home in the playoffs against an AFC rival. You go into a season with a, I, I don't know, in a, in a different fashion and, and maybe a little bit under the radar. Is this a good spot for the Bills? 
Well, I don't, I don't know, and I don't really think that matters. The spot that they're in, uh, you know, compared to any other year, they didn't win last year because they turned the ball over too much, particularly in the red zone, because. You know, there were times, especially very late in the year, in the last game in particular, that Stephon Diggs just went off. Um, And, you know, I think Josh Allen probably missed Brian Dable some, okay? But, But I do think, I do think, you know, the reports of the demise of the Buffalo Bills have been greatly exaggerated. And the reason is that Josh Allen is just simply too good. And just because he turned the ball over six times in the red zone last year does not mean that, A, he's going to do it again, and, B, that he's some turnover machine. I don't think he is. And my feeling about Josh Allen is that he's significantly better than he's getting credit for in this offseason and this summer. I think he's going to have a fabulous year. Um, because he hears everything that everyone has said about him. And I think he's going to be really, really good. I think one of the big factors for this team is going to be developing another weapon or two beyond uh, Stephon Diggs. I mean, Gabriel Davis has to come back. You know, the first-round tight end has to hit the ground running. Um, and I think both of those things are going to happen. Their backfield is better. Their line is good, but not great. And I think they're going to be a good and explosive offensive team. And I think it's going to be good enough to win. Now, having said that, they have not had in any of the time since they have gotten good again, they have not had anywhere near the level of competition uh, that they're having this year in their division. And I don't know, quite honestly, what that is going to mean. I don't know what exactly that uh, is, how that's going to affect what they do. I do know this. The New York Jets are going to have a top five defense. They might have a top two defense. It's going to be a terrific defense. And last year, the Jets beat the Bills in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So this game, I, I don't, I, I, in my opinion, I don't think any Bills fan should go too nuts if, uh, if the Bills lose this game Monday night. It's a very, very simple reason. It's very possible that there will not be a tougher single game on their schedule, and obviously they play a very tough schedule. Uh, you know, their annual war with Kansas City, they, they've got a tough schedule, but there's something about this game. Look, I live in New York City, mm-hmm. and there is a feeling around the Jets now that this game is being built up into Armageddon land. <laughs> and so... I think, I, I think you know, if you love the Bills, don't go too nuts if they lose this game 31-20. to 20. I Really, don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one game out of 17, and the Bills are going to have a really, really good year. I, and, and keep in mind, I picked them to make the Super Bowl, 
and not win the division because I think the Jets, I just really like the Jets to win this division. I think they're, they're going to have a really, really good year. Yeah, like the AFC needed more quarterback talent. They go out and get uh, yeah. <laughs> a Hall of Famer in Aaron Rodgers. And, yeah, they, they, you know, I, I, it is interesting. This is It was such a likable Giants team with Brian Dable, make the playoffs and yada, yada, yada. Um, but And that, that Jets team has so much talent, but, yeah, just couldn't get it right at the quarterback position. Acquiring Aaron Rodgers and understanding how good the defense was last year and expects to be again this year and, and the bar for success for... Aaron Rodgers, not you know, he doesn't need to be his MVP type self to 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 have a good season in New York. I mean, g- give me a sense of of the temperature in in that city as far as who's taking over that town from a football perspective. Because it wasn't that long ago I was talking to you about it it really being a, a wasteland for football. Now it feels like it's it's on the upswing, and they're calling it Jet Life uh, Jet Life Stadium. Yeah, I think this is. I think the city is going to be far more into and far more excited about the Jets than they are about the Giants. It's nothing that the Giants haven't done. It's just that, look, the Giants caught a bunch of breaks last year. They were really a good team, okay, but they caught a lot of breaks. Uh, They won some close games. Uh, You know, people don't really think – when you're in the playoffs and you go win a playoff game on the road, nobody remembers that there's a really good chance they could have lost to Houston mm-hmm. last year. <laughs> I mean, there's a, you know, they got blown out at home by Detroit. I mean, they, they, over the last two years, have won a total of two games in the NFC East. You know, they were 0-3 against the Eagles last year. And so, you know, the Giants have a ways to go. <laughs> they just do. And they know it. Um, you know, I know Joe Shane, and he in no way thinks that they've arrived. Um, whereas with the Jets, look, you've now got two, you've got two years maybe with Aaron Rodgers. They know how important, how critically important this season is to them. I really think they've got two years with Aaron Rodgers. They might get a third, might, but I think they've got two years with Aaron Rodgers. So for those who say, oh, man, it's ridiculous, they can't win it this year, well, you know, they have their best chance to win a Super Bowl this year, in my opinion, uh, than they've had in decades. Mm. And you'd probably have to go back to when Parcells had them in the playoffs in Denver and they just – really kind of their, their, their team just kind of choked that game away. Um, but this, is, this team has got a chance to be really, really good. And uh, they're, the bad part of it for them is that they're in the AFC and they got to beat Patrick Mahomes. I mean, the reward for them winning the division is that they're going to have to beat, uh, you know, in the playoffs – probably two of the following people, you know, Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, uh, Lamar Jackson, maybe. It's just, it's a really, really tough road to get out of the AFC, as you know. Yeah, well, and I I was just going to say, like, can you remember a season, and and maybe it'll all look different when we look back on this year, but it's so much of the quarterback talent just seems 
situated in, in the AFC. And it's not that there's not good quarterbacks in the NFC and not that some team in the, the NFC isn't going to win the Super Bowl. And I guess we're still learning about Brock Purdy and whether he can stay health, healthy. And Justin Fields certainly has shown some some things in, in limited time. And Jordan Love, we're, we're learning about. But, like, can you remember a, a situation or a season in which so much quarterback talent was situated in one of the conferences? I think the closest to this, and I, I asked a bunch of people that on my trip, my training camp trip, and uh, uh, Chris Greer, the general manager in Miami, said, you know, I think probably the closest to it is when the AFC had Marino, Elway, and Kelly. Mm. And uh, I think he's right. I mean, and, and for a time, Dan Fouts was involved uh, with those guys. So, you know, there were two, three, four years, I think, probably with Marino, Kelly, Elway, Fouts. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous. And I'm sure that there were a couple of other quarterbacks in the division at the time who were re- in the conference who were really good, too. So it's been a while. Yeah, well, it, it's such a, a conference deep in quarterback play that, like, Trevor Lawrence kind of goes under the radar after leading yeah, that Jags yeah. team into the playoffs. The, the team that you have uh, pegged as, as at least the regular season top seed coming out of the AFC. I mean, is that just the nature of playing in, in what is the, the softer division? Or, or is this a, a real reason to believe in the Jags taking a step forward from a nine-win team? The Jaguars play 10 of their 17 games against the two worst divisions in football, the AFC South and the NFC South. So, yes, they've got some tough games. They play Kansas City. But when do they play Kansas City? They play Kansas City week two, Sunday afternoon, 1 o'clock in the afternoon at home when it could be 99 degrees real feel in northeastern Florida. So they play San Francisco. Um, and so they, it isn't that they're playing nobody. They're playing some pretty good teams. And they also play the uh, AFC North. So they, they have some tough games. But if you, if you just look at the schedule of the Buffalo Bills versus the Jacksonville Jaguars, look at the schedule of Kansas City versus the Jacksonville Jaguars. It's it's no contest. It's just it's and and again, look, no one knows on November 1st what these schedules mean. So we're judging it based on what these teams are like entering the season. But all I can say is the Jacksonville Jaguars schedule is the envy of every contender in the NFL. Yeah, and, and to make matters worse for the Chiefs, um, they won't have Chris Jones on Thursday, I don't believe. That would be a, a right. good turnaround in that contract dispute guy with 15 and a half sacks last season during the regular season, two more in the playoffs. And now this this news that Travis Kelsey's dealing with like a hyperextended knee, and I guess his status for Thursday's game might be thrown in, into to question. That's just kind of a breaking news. I, I don't imagine you you have any extra information on that one, but the, the... I don't know any, I don't know anything more than what I, what I just heard about it from Andy Reid's press conference. However, mm-hmm. if you think about it, does any team want to go into a season where two of your top three players, there's a very good chance that both of them are going to be missing for one or multiple weeks. 
I mean, we just talked about playing Jacksonville in week two. How about going into Jacksonville without Travis Kelsey and without Chris Jones? And I'm not saying they will. I don't know what will happen. But but I'm, I'm just saying that Kansas City in the last 72 hours, I would say, since it became apparent that this Chris Jones thing is pretty serious and may actually not get done. Um, that's those are those are real major problems for this team. Yeah, um, lost Tyreek Hill and, and managed to get through. But yeah, you're right. Like at a, at a certain point, there's there's too many players to lose. Although Patrick Mahomes is is such a magician, I, I don't know if that that there is a point actually. Um, so they get the Lions yeah. in, in Week One, and obviously the Lions will be massive underdogs on the road. But they're the eighth favorite to win the Super Bowl according to to Vegas after they were such a fun team and an exciting team. A year ago, what are the realistic expectations of this Detroit team? You know, I mean, I still think that there is this element of, holy crap, they scheduled us to play the first game of the season against the Super Bowl champs in Arrowhead. Yeah. Holy crap. And, you know, I sensed that when I was in their camp. Um, even though I was there in right at the beginning of camp in July, the interesting thing is they've got a bunch of young stars. You know, Amon Ross St. Brown is truly one of the most interesting human beings in the NFL. This is a guy who, his senior year in high school, he took the SAT test in three different languages. Oh. You know, his mother spoke German at home, his father spoke English. And they, and, they, and they also spoke French as a family. And, and again, what does that mean? Nothing. It's just that they have a lot of great stories that no one knows. You know, nobody really knows much about this team. They're going to be really fun to watch. And, look, no team is very good without the quarterback being good. And last year in the last nine games, uh, Jared Goff did not throw a single interception. And – you know, that was a huge factor in this team turning it around. So I think golf has sort of gotten over the heartbreak of being kicked to the curb by the Rams. And I think every year from now on is an I'll show you year uh, for Jared Goff. And so I think they get a chance to be good. I think Aiden Hutchinson has a chance to be one of the best defensive players in football. They're, they're a really interesting team to me. I can't wait to, to see what develops. No, it's an incredible start to the season on Thursday. So I mentioned all those incredible quarterbacks in the AFC. I, I don't even think that includes Russell Wilson, at least the way he played a season ago. But new head coach and a potential future <clears throat> Hall of Famer in, in Sean Payton, this feels like a real litmus test as far as the impact one man at the head coaching position can, can have on, on a team here, Peter. Yeah, I mean, there's a great story on ESPN.com today by Sean, uh, or by Seth Wickersham about Sean Payton. And it's very interesting and totally talks about Payton. Uh, you know, he's such a desperado as a coach. You know, should have coached for Al Davis at some point, really. But, but I think one of the interesting things about the story is that he's basically not going to be patient with this team. Mm. He, and he's not going to be patient with Russell Wilson. I don't think either. I mean, he is giving them enough 
uh, enough resources and enough talent, he believes, to be good right away. And there's a scene in this story where he's extremely disappointed with how they practiced one day, and he really lights into him. And I think that is what this team needs. Mm-hmm. I think this team needs some very tough love because they got too much talent to be crappy. And Russell Wilson has too much talent to be lousy. So he's going to have a chance under Sean Payton to be put in the same kind of really good positions that Drew Brees was put in. And um, so it, we're going to see if Russell Wilson can respond. Uh, before we let you go, you also you were, you were retelling the story 31 years ago of interviewing Deion Sanders, <laughs> who took over yeah. at Colorado. And after a one-win season a year ago, they come out and beat the, the national championship runner-up. Uh, in TCU, on the road in week one. I mean, it, it really does feel like we're headed towards, when it's all said and done, one of the most interesting sporting careers of all time, a multi-sport athlete who ends up, you know, also having a secondary career as, as an incredible head coach. Well, he, you know, he wants to be, he wants to be the best coach in the country. And in college football, I think he, I don't think he really has any great desire to be in the NFL. I think he is so into college football and molding lives of young people. Um, And, yeah, I I think here's a guy who I don't think anybody realizes how good he could have been in baseball. Hmm. The guy with a 571 lifetime World Series batting average, you know, when he played for, I think, Atlanta. Did he also play for the Yankees? I forget in the series. But be that as it may. He's he's a, he's just a really special and very very different human being. And what I think is cool about him being the coach at Colorado now is that you know nobody in college football has seen anybody like him. Mm. He just that's because people like him don't exist in the sport of college football. So I'm really interested in watching it, and I've already. I've been talking to people at NBC, and I said, hey, listen, at some point, if this continues, I'm not going to be covering the NFL one week, and I'm going to, be, I'm going to go cover Deion Sanders in a big game. And uh, so anyway, it's just going to be a fun year. Yeah, an, an incredible start with the sun at the helm and uh, an incredible victory. And yeah, uh, Blue Jays fans well remember his performance during that 92 World Series where he went yeah. eight eight for 15, had had five stolen bases in the four games he played in the World Series against the Blue Jays. An incredible, incredible athlete and uh, having an incredible second career as a head coach in the, in the college ranks. Peter, uh, always enjoy yeah. our chats. Thanks so much for doing this. Okay, you're welcome, Ben. We'll talk to you next week. Sounds good. There's Peter King, NBC Sports and Football Morning in America, getting set for week one, game one on Thursday. A team with plenty of hype and higher expectations. Actually kind of a good spot. Major underdogs on the road at Arrowhead against the Kansas City Chiefs team that I'm sure the Chiefs are hoping are not going to be at their best as far as a roster perspective is concerned because Chris Jones ain't going to play in that game on Thursday. That's that's pretty well established as his holdout continues in the final year of a what four-year $80 million deal looking for an extension. At least going to miss week one. And if we're hearing about Travis Kelsey hyperextending his knee on a Tuesday, it does stand to reason that he'd be unlikely to suit up on a Thursday. So maybe a good spot for the Lions. And I don't expect the Kansas City Chiefs to go... 17-0 and 0 by any stretch of the imagination.
But there is no safer bet in NFL football than the Kansas City Chiefs, whether that's week to week or in an overall sense. Here are the uh, Chiefs wins, win totals under Patrick Mahomes. 12, 12, 14, 12, 14. They're over under set at 11 and a half. Like, I mean, doesn't that, that seems like no brainer in a AFC West that's getting worse, I think. I don't know, unless you think really that there's some magic sauce being spread by by Sean Payton. I It just feels like prime Tom Brady Patriots stuff right now that you just bet on the Chiefs every single season until you get proven otherwise. Or they have like one slip up where they made the AFC Championship game every single year of Patrick Mahomes' existence and won at least 12 games. Seems like an easy bet. All right, when we come back, Blue Jays, Oakland A's, yet again tonight in a night game in Oakland. Blue Jays getting the start against the lefty with Chris Bassett on the mound and uh, trying to spin that uh, sinker in there. Rangers continuing their series against the Astros. There's a scenario in which the Blue Jays find themselves once again back in a playoff spot in the American League. We'll talk to John Morosi of MLB Network about that. Also, Shohei Otani's agent spoke about the potential of him continuing his two-way career and what the hell's going on with Alec Manoa, who's yet again not reporting to the Buffalo Bisons. John Morosi next. The Fan Drive Time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Your daily dose of everything NFL. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan drive time, Sportsnet 590. The fan back to the basement. Go the Oakland A's after the Blue Jays beat him yesterday. Sole possession of the worst record in Major League Baseball. Blue Jays trying to secure themselves the series victory today. Although that feels like the bare minimum. It felt like the bare minimum in Colorado, and that's what they got. Um, but yeah, the, the Rangers continuing their series against the champs. They're losing game one yesterday after the Astros were swept by the Yankees. And now the Blue Jays just a half game back. And boy, 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 Monday setting up to be the series of the season. Start of a four-gamer between the Blue Jays and Rangers with potential tiebreaker on the line as well. Because there's no game 163 anymore with the expanded playoff field. Blue Jays actually have the tiebreaker against the Astros. They do not have it against the Mariners. And in fact, the fashion in which they got it against the Astros was the exact same fashion. They could get it against the Rangers. They lost two out of three. In Houston, they won three of four at home against the Astros. We'll see. Could be a fun time down at uh, the ballpark starting on Monday. Let's talk to our pal, John Morosi of MLB Network. Happy September, John. Ben, I was just about to say the same thing to you. Happy September baseball. Pennant race baseball. It's every day. In some ways, Ben, I really love September ball as much or more than October because you've got the entire season coming all the way down to these last couple weeks. Everybody's still involved. Love it. And I do love that the wild card berth can, should, and probably will come down to those four games in Toronto next week. John, you, you stole like the words right out of my mouth. Cause I was going to say the same thing. Like, okay, so you make the playoffs and you're guaranteed two games, but how about like close to 30 
playoff games. That's what it feels like uh, for the Blue Jays. And despite the, you know, them having at least the roster advantage against these teams, it's baseball. Anything can happen, as we've we've already seen in this series in Colorado. I, I, I and you you raised the the extra wild card teams as well. I. I got to say, when they first uh, announced the the format and the expanded playoff roster I, or field, I was I was I was a little skeptical. But man, it, it is really playing out to be something that that has been beneficial to the sport. And I don't I don't necessarily think it's watered down the field because those those division winners, especially the top two in each league, really do get a significant advantage. Well, you're right, and and let's go back. You know, we referenced the the 2021 Jays quite often in terms of how narrowly they missed the playoffs that that was a playoff caliber team they didn't make it but that was a, a effectively a playoff worthy team and when you look at both the al and the nl wild card races right now it's not as though some unworthy team is like backing in at the moment yes the red sox are four and a half games back of the the third and final spot in, in the american league but i, but I think in, in so many ways you've got a situation where the you know, the, the Rangers are right there. The Astros are right there. The Jays are right there. They're all very worthy teams. And in the NL, it's this amazing race going on right now with multiple teams involved. All of them, in my opinion, worthy in different in different ways. So I think in general, Ben, it's been a very good innovation in the sport. Yeah, it has been. And and we've I talked to you, I think, last time about the disaster that would be the Blue Jays missing the playoffs after being one of the World Series favorites coming into this season. Well, the Rangers have the fourth highest payroll in all of baseball, and they've been they've been big spenders, and they were off to a great start, and they have this massive run uh, positive run differential. But they are four and thirteen in their last seventeen. Now, I guess they're getting healthier with Nathan Navaldi uh, returning to to the rotation for them. But but John, what has happened to this Rangers team that felt like they were home and cooled out at least into the playoffs? They they were leading the division for so long. Injuries, Ben, is is the short answer, and and. To your point with Evaldi, that that one is going to, I think, be a potential game changer for them back in the positive direction because if you go back and, and watch, they really started the tailspin right after the All-Star break. And that was around the time that Jonah Heim was injured, but more importantly, when Evaldi was injured. And when you think about the big picture of this team, you've got Jacob deGrom out. And when you've spent that amount of money on a pitcher of deGrom's caliber and he's not anywhere near the rotation because of, uh, his injury and being gone for the balance of the year, that bill is going to come due, especially if you're also missing your co-ace in Evaldi, who was one of the best pitchers in the American League in the first half of the year. So getting him back for the stretch run is huge, again, provided that he can do something close to what he did in the first half. But interestingly, it's it's these younger players that the, the Rangers had come to rely upon in, in a great way. Jonah Heim, their catcher, Josh Young, their stud rookie third baseman. Uh, it was around that time. Evaldi went down. Young went down. Heim went down. Heim has come back. He hasn't quite hit the way they did it before the injury. So I think it's just been a, a test of their depth that they were able to withstand for a while, even when DeGrom was out. But it was when that next wave of injuries hit that really knocked them back. I think some of their younger guys that had become really reliable, Tavares is a name, uh, Ezekiel Duran, they had all become really reliable players in a short amount of time. They came back down to earth a little bit. And, and I think, to your point, Ben, it, it was a dramatic change where that team was last year at the end of the season to where they were in the first half. And they probably found their mean a little bit. And, and it looks to me, really, Ben, that it's going to come down to the Rangers and the Jays for that final spot. Unless 
unless Seattle totally tumbles back down to earth, I think it's going to be those two teams. And I really think that if the Jays can keep his momentum going, I like their pitching. I like the way their young guys have played, whether it's Schneider or Clement. Um, they've had some young guys come up. Horowitz is another one and play really good baseball here over the last week. I know it's been against second-tier competition, but they're, they're getting hot and feeling good at the right time. No, th- those are guys that I don't think anybody could have counted on um, going into this season, and they've been spectacular. I mean, David Schneider has been the best hitter on this Blue Jays team since he he, he arrived and is now hitting usually second. Um, and against the lefty, I expect him to be hitting second again today. Um, they, all three of them, Ernie Clement, Spencer Horowitz, and David Schneider, have all had great seasons in the International League and in, in AAA. I wonder, though, John, like, was there a... Is there a, re- a reluctance around Major League Baseball considering the, the offensive environment that exists in AAA where the average OPS is 800 because of the automated balls and, and strikes that, that there is like, there's a, a level of skepticism uh, when, when uh, general managers are looking down at those box scores and seeing some of the absurd offensive totals that, hey, it, it, you really have to show it at the Major League level for us to believe that what you've done in AAA is transferable to a Major League level. Well, you're right, and, and it's a very fair point that the ABS has, I think, had a tremendous impact on the, the offensive numbers in AAA. But I also think that when you take a look at the big picture here and, and deals that were made, not made in, in the final days before the deadline, trusting your own people mm-hmm. is both the inexpensive path and it also builds you some goodwill in, in your organization. But let's think about this. If you just sort of – narrow this amount of time and and consider the Paul DeYoung acquisition did not really end up doing much good for the Jays in a very short amount of time. Would they have just been better served promoting from within all along? And Clement obviously has gotten the opportunity. He's done great with it. Remember this snapshot in time because in, in the, it may feel like a long time from now, but the month of November and December when Ross Atkins is on the phone with an agent of a player who says, yeah, I'm coming back from injury, didn't have a great 2023, looking for an opportunity where I got a chance to win a job, or if I don't win a job where you're not going to forget about me during the course of the season. And then Ross Atkins is going to say, well, wait a minute, uh, let me draw your attention to Spencer Horowitz hmm. and Clement and Schneider and say, I call guys up. <laughs> Sign with me, Buffalo is close to Toronto, and we don't forget about you. Now, I know it's not always the, the sexy answer to give you right now, Ben, but, but over the long sweep of time, let me tell you something, that matters. Because the teams that this year were exposed as having no depth, they didn't have the depth that you typically have to call upon where? At AAA. Hmm. Look at the Yankees. Look at the Mets. Look at the Padres. The disappointing teams had nothing when things started to, to somersault in the wrong direction. And so it, it just builds goodwill. And it also, honestly, let, let's think about it this way. And, and I'll, I'll make the point that I, I don't have close, intimate knowledge of, of what the, the Jays' hitting coach attack plan is at AAA in comparison to the major league level. I do know that a lot of clubs have tried to standardize things across their system that goes major leagues down to the minor leagues. But let's be real here. This, at a time where, where the Jays' offensive approach was under scrutiny for a lot of the season, you got a bunch of guys coming up from AAA saying, wow, I'm bringing up my my minor league strategy, and it's working well for me at the major league level. That tends to say something about the quality of the hitting coaches that you've got in the minor leagues 
and it might make you take a second chance and a second thought about what your staff is going to look like in the future. No, that's a great, great point. And yeah, I mean, going back to the the point about the Blue Jays not having a reluctance to call guys up. I mean, Jay Jackson, you know, was on a major league deal and was taken off that major league deal and signed a minor league deal with this this baseball team because he expected uh, to be called up at some point. And he has been called up and he's been an an effective reliever for the Blue Jays as well. I don't expect Alec Manoa to be called up from AAA at any point uh, before the end of the season, honestly, because he is... He's actually been placed on the temporarily inactive list, uh, has not yet pitched for the Buffalo Bisons. It's been a very weird situation for Alec Manoa start to finish. I mean, the, uh, the performance is the weirdest, considering this is one of the best pitchers in the American League just a year ago. But, yeah, usually when a guy is sent down, like it happens all the time, like, and, and maybe not necessarily pitchers of, of Manoa's stature, but guys with options get sent down. And then they pitch in the minor leagues, and then they try to find themselves, and then they put themselves back on the radar to be recalled to the major leagues. It's just we have not seen that uh, at times with with Manoa, and this most recent demotion is is super super weird. It's been weeks and weeks since we've seen him at the minor league level. Is is this just one of those scenarios where a guy? It, it's more of a mental break. Like, is this on your radar in 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 any way, John? As far as the bizarreness of the situation, it's definitely on my radar, and. There's two ways of looking at this. Number one, right now, objectively, he is not one of their five best starting pitchers, and that's why he's in Buffalo. So that's period. That's the top line point that as long as everybody stays healthy for the balance of the year, they don't necessarily need him at the major league level. That's one statement to make. Number two, though, is at some point they need him, either in person or in a trade. And, and they have to do it in a way that, that I think um, hopefully helps both Alec and the organization and potentially his new organization going forward if they go that route. But the only way that he's going to rebuild his value is if he pitches. He's got to pitch somewhere. The issues that, the issues that have come up relate to strike throwing, um, performing, in-game conditions. So the only way that he's going to be able to fix this is – eventually in game condition. And that's where he's at with it. Uh, where does it go? What does he do? Does he go pitch in winter ball to, to show that he can still get it done? I mean, the, the, the issue now is that far apart from any sort of injury or underperformance, he's basically missed at least half a year of, of meaningful innings. Mm-hmm. And, and if I were the Jays, um, and if I wanted to have any thought about either trading him or bringing him back next year, I need to see him pitch. Like, does he go to the fall league? Does he go to winter ball? I don't know. But but he's got to pitch somewhere for for the Jays to know if they can count on him. And and maybe he just becomes uh, the the uh, the baseball equivalent of of the lottery ticket, if you will, and in in, from spring training to say, hey, does it work out? Does it not? But it's almost a bonus if it does, and you're almost rostering over him to to have enough consistency in your rotation. It is a it is a vexing situation. I'm sure that obviously the Jays know a lot more about this than what they can say publicly about what he's doing, why this is the case. But certainly if, if we were going to ask, is there a path back for him to the major leagues this year? You don't see it because he's not pitching. And, and at some point you lose that ability to be built up. Um, it is confusing. And I fully expect you know, Alec is a very honest and accountable person. Uh, in my dealings with him in the past, I expect that at some point he will talk about what's what's happened. 
and give and give an accounting of, of how he's doing on and off the field, what, what the plan is going forward. Because certainly baseball is a huge part of his life. I'm sure that getting back and playing again is, is a huge priority for him. But, but there are some boxes to check before we see him back in a major league uniform. And it's, it's just not happening right now. And, and certainly we've seen many different cases where pitchers and players take time away, come back and perform great. And I really hope in my heart that that's true for Alex because the game is better and the Jays are better when he's around them. Uh, it's just not, not happening right now. And I think that we are, we are really, to be honest, not close yet to getting the full picture of, of why things are the way they are. We just know that right now on, on the journey from getting from where he is now to getting back to the big leagues, he is literally at, at the, the starting line. I mean, we, we have not really seen any progress uh, in, in that regard. Yeah, if the Blue Jays needed another starter, which is not out of the realm of possibility, injuries do happen, although they hadn't happened for the Blue Jays for the, the first, like, four and a half months uh, of the season. But, yeah, I, I don't know who they would call on to, to fill that starting spot. It certainly would not be Alec Manoa right now, who is not even pitching. And he was, I, while it was a deserving demotion, and Hunjin Ryu has is, is certainly pitched very well since he was given that spot in the rotation. The the idea that Alec Manoa is like unpitchably bad that wouldn't be in in consideration to make us a, a spot start in the major leagues is is not correct. But yeah, you can't start a guy that hasn't pitched in weeks and weeks and weeks, but but here we are. Um Shohei Otani's agent spoke. John, this is gonna be such an interesting story this off season because he put up yet another otherworldly offensive season. And when he, when he was healthy pitching, he was a spectacular pitcher. Um, but yeah, obviously has the UCL injury and I, I don't know if he's going to need Tommy John surgery. I guess the agent was claiming that he's going to need some procedure, but it might not be Tommy John and that he can continue to play as an offensive player next year. Like, do do you think teams are going to buy that? Like, are you going to have to in free agency be sold on the fact that you are buying like a fully healthy Shohei Otani just to compete in the marketplace for his services? It's a great question, Ben, and I, and I do think it's going to be one of the big topics that we get into as a as a North American sports community, really a global sports community, in the, in the coming months. Because I, a couple things that stand out about what Nesbolello said. Number one is that he is that he really he wanted to make the point very clear that that Shohei is going to be able to bat next year, and I, and I think that is both the the correct thing to say because. There are ways in which, for example, with Bryce Harper, that he was able to come back and, and DH long before he could play in the field. And that is, that's what's happened. That, that's a very close comparison medically. And obviously, in Bryce's case, he played all the way through Game 6 of the World Series. Safe to say, Shohei will not do that this year. So he'll be able to have whatever procedure he needs earlier. If it's the internal brace procedure, it's going to be even less time than that. So... He can DH next year, and I, I do think that from Shohei's perspective, you're going to be able to potentially have whatever procedure you need uh, and maybe even get it done in the early days of October. And if you look at it as, as Shohei's free agency, if he's your DH, he's almost the finishing piece, especially if he's not going to pitch that much next year. Mm. So if you think about your club, how many good teams with big payrolls get to – February or January and say, you know what? I believe I can add one more bat and think about when Harper signed, when Machado signed. I think the most likely situation that we see right now is, is Shohei. If, if Nesvalello says he's going to, it's inevitable. He's going to have some kind of surgery. Maybe he gets the surgery in the early days of October, 
starts to recover, and then there's a check-in time around the first of the year. Will it be three months post-op? And see, okay, how's it going? And you're going to have your, your surgeon, his surgeon, specialists, consultants saying, what do we got with this? And, and how, how soon is he going to be able to be a DH? And then you make your decision from there. But I, I think you, you wait until he's, he's healthy or at least post-op. You get a chance to get in there and look at it. But I think what's clear, Ben, is that he's not going to be getting this $600 million deal that we all thought. I mean, mm. he may be the greatest DH and the most marketable DH in the history of the game, but you're not going to pay a DH and a DH only $600 million. You, you, may, you may do a thing where you sign him to a two-year deal as a DH at like $50 million a year for the first two years, and then there's an opt-in that says if you make X number of starts in 2025, then you get like an eight-year extension at $400 million, something like that. You can structure the deal very cleverly and I think very fairly in that method. Um, and, and it was interesting to me that in the commentary and, and Sam Blum of, uh, of The Athletic and other, other reporters reported on this, Nez Bolello notably did not say it's going to be a short-term deal or it's going to be a long-term deal. I think he's putting everything out there. We're going to look at it and see. Uh, I think the Dodgers in this situation do have an advantage because of their success rate with second surgeries and their ability to get them back. It's just going to be a really, really interesting few months ahead. Ben, and I, I'm not convinced that we're going to know where Shohei is going to play for 2024 much before the start of February of 2024. Okay, well, at least, that, you know, that's that's good uh, grist for the mill. You know, that, that's good for those of us who have to, you know, have to talk on, on a radio show five days a week, that the, there's going to be lots of content for, for, for me to go over when it comes to, to Shohei Otani. The Angels are also the, the focus of, of, of a story that wasn't so positive. I mean, not that Shohei... Uh, having Tommy John surgery is positive. It obviously is not. But yeah, the, the the season he had before the Tommy John surgery is positive. But the, this waivers thing, John, which, you know, I, it caught me by surprise because I'm used to, yeah, I guess the recallable wa- waivers stuff that we used to have in August. And, and obviously this is just the, the newest form of that. And there was a lot of, of claims made, uh, although apparently the Angels did not quite get under the CBT, which was their want. And, and Randall Grichik might have done it, but he was not acquired because... Of the rules that are in place with this waivers thing where you, the, the, the waiver priority, one, does not reset when you are successful in, in a waiver transaction. And, and two, that you got to take everybody that you make a claim for if, in fact, you're successful there. Feels like there's a couple of tweaks that need to be made here, John. Like that, that, that seems like an easy one that if you get somebody that it should go back to the, the top of the, of the order there when it, when it comes to a, a waiver claim. And secondarily, and I know Lucas Giolito was not great in his, his first start for Cleveland uh, yesterday, but th- that's quite a competitive advantage that teams can, can, can get with the, these, these pure waiver players. Right. It's almost as though uh, the, the, the goal if you're going to be active in waivers is to be in second place or be in third place. Yeah. Uh, but it's, obviously, it's, I'm, I'm being a little facetious there, but uh, you're right. The, the waiver claim rule is unique. Uh, it is somewhat unique to this time of year and, and the, the post-Justin Verlander blockbuster trade that precipitated uh, the uniform trade deadline. A couple thoughts on this thing. Number one, Ben, we may see, and I know there's, there's some appetite in this among the GMs in the sport, to move back the trade deadline from August 1st, which it was this year. Traditionally, of course, it was July 31, 4 p.m. Eastern time. It's different now uh, where there's a little more flexibility and there can be a mutual agreement that pushes it back. I would suspect that in 2024, 
it'll be a little bit later than it was this year. And maybe the thought is that that will capture some of those teams that had dramatic swings uh, right on the final few days. And who knows, maybe if the, if the deadline had been 10 days later, Shohei Otani might have been traded. And obviously in, in the irony would have been, he would have been traded right before he wasn't able to pitch anymore, but that, that's sort of the theoretical exercise we're going through. I, I do think that they'll take a look at this, but the other part is, and I understand, I suppose why Cleveland made the, made the moves they did. They technically had a chance. Uh, it was less than 10%, but it was something of a fallacy to make the move when they did. It was way too little, too late to where Delito goes out there, has a, a bad start yesterday, and it's almost as though the division race is over. Yeah. So what, what was the point there? <laughs> you added $3 million in payroll when you, when you were already well below 500 and, and a good distance back in the division. It, it just didn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, they got Naylor back. I understand that. Um, you know, it's potentially Terry Francona's final month in the job. There's reasons to make that move. Maybe you're trying to convey to your, your fan base and or the league or the union that you're still trying to win and, and, and that from a payroll standpoint that that has some effectiveness. It just struck me as a little strange. Uh, it just it was, it was not the most cost-effective move to make when they made it. Uh, I will always never begrudge a team for doing something that makes their team better, but it was really too little too late. Now, the, the interesting thing on the Angel side of things, you notice the last couple of days, they reportedly put Max Stassi on the restricted list, mm. which will allow them to save some money there. So it's possible that by putting Stassi on the restricted list, and he hasn't played all year because of a family medical situation, maybe that will allow them to get underneath. Uh, will there be a, a sort of an appeal on that? We will see. But it is a very interesting decision that the Angels made and one that I think just speaks to um, sort of how, how sad it's become there where they had to make some moves aimed at improving their drastic compensation by two rounds in the likely now, it appears, event that Shohei Otani goes somewhere else this offseason. Yeah, it's been an abject disaster. I mean, not to mention the Anthony Rendon stuff and then him blowing off a reporter who asked about his, his health status. He's played 43 games this season, and, and yeah, it's it's just it's hasn't gone well in Anaheim, uh, to say the least. Uh, John, what, this is the best time of year for, for baseball fans. I uh, can't wait for, for what the next couple of weeks have in store for us. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. I love it. Reach out anytime, my friend, and congratulations as well to Canada on the Olympic birth and hoops. How about that? We can't wait. Paris, a year from now, is going to be a lot of fun. Oh, can't wait for it. Uh, thanks, John. All the best, Ben. Thank you. All right, there's John Morosi, MLB Network. Jump like gun there. We're going to talk Canada basketball before the end of the show. As we uh, talk to Doug Smith, yeah, one of the most exciting national team performances in, I mean, across all sports, of course, yeah. 2010, Vancouver was kind of important. Uh, but no, that was spec-freaking-tacular. Maybe a sign of things to come, because I talked to Dan Schulman last week about how he's the connective tissue between Canada basketball and the Toronto Blue Jays, who have the potential of massive upsides, but also massive heartbreak and disappointment. So step one, complete. Team Canada through. Now, perhaps when he returns to uh, Colin Blue Jays games, that'll be step two, also complete. Um... Before we go back to the Blue Jays for a second, I, I have one last thing to say on this Lucas Giolito start yesterday in this Minnesota-Cleveland game that I was watching yesterday until I wasn't, and understandably so, when you find out what happened in the game. And if you were watching it, you know this. Lucas Giolito was brutal. And I, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of going to play devil's advocate to, to John's 
talking about how it was kind of a waste of money for Cleveland. They're five games back, right? With this series still upcoming against the division leaders, you sweep it. Yeah, it's a different deal. Talking about two games here, but um, Gilead was brutal. They were out of it early. They were down 10-1 or 11-1. And if you're aware of, of the, the, there was a new rule put into place in Major League Baseball as far as position players are concerned that a leading team has to be leading by, I think it's 10 or more, and they can only pitch a position player in the 8th or ninth inning. Team trailing can do it at any time in the baseball game as long as they're trailing by 8 runs. So Cleveland yesterday had a position player coming into the game in the 6th freaking inning. Which, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to argue about the strategy. I think it's actually great strategy, and more teams should employ it. Because why on earth would you want to waste a bullet? Even the last guy on your depth chart in your bullpen, like why on earth would you do that in a game that you have essentially no chance of coming back in? Like 10 runs, they, it just doesn't happen. I mean, in the history of baseball, what is that? That's like a well less than 1% chance of a comeback. But, yeah, once teams catch on that that's a, that's a real thing that they can do, and we start seeing position players in, like, the fourth inning, what a farce of a sport this is going to be. It was a farce yesterday in the sixth inning, a position player coming in. I mean, not only is it a joke to watch, and, boy, it was tough to, to watch the broadcaster try and navigate a game that is not a competitive event for, like, an hour of its broadcast. but. Not only that, we're going to have... I mean, you, you thought the steroid era was bad as far as throwing all the records out of whack and looking at ba- people's baseball reference pages and that not making sense. Well, I mean, what happens when... Remember, there was a long time there that Vlad's only home run came off a position player for like a month. But yeah, what happens when, you know, every week you're facing two or three position players? I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration because it's not often that a team goes up eight runs, but it happens, you know more than a couple of times a month that can't happen that's embarrassing to the sport so a couple of things off this conversation with john morosi one i i think there's there's something going on between what the not just the blue jays minor leaguers have have gone through in seeing this automated strike zone in triple a but what i guess minor leagues across all of major league baseball have gone through that and maybe this was already part of the offensive approach for Spencer Horowitz and David Schneider, and maybe to a lesser extent, Ernie Clement. But there seems to be a belief that when you take a ball, it's going to be called a ball. And I, and I wonder if that comes with the idea that, one, a robot's calling all the balls in strike in half the games. And by the way, if people aren't aware, half the games in AAA are called just automatic balls and strikes. There's an umpire back there, but he's just listening to a headset that's telling him whether it's a ball and strike. And then like half of the weak games are this challenge system that you know that if you take a ball, like if you're Kevin Biggio and you have this incredible understanding of the strike zone, you're not going to get screwed by some umpire. If you take a two strike pitch three inches off the black, like that's going to properly be called a ball. I wonder if that's having an impact on some of the seemingly incredible refined approaches we're seeing from David Schneider, Ernie Clement, and Spencer Horowitz, I mean, you do look at the their track record of what's made them successful in the minor leagues. It's been a lot of walks, a lot of on-base. Um, and then trusting your own people is a good point, too. And it's taken them, like, they've been forced into it due to injuries. But that is a good signal to be sending 
to your organization that if you perform, there's only so long we can hold you down in the minor leagues before we're forced to bring you up to the major leagues. David Schneider was having an insane, insane season when they called him up. And lastly, before we break, this Alec Manoa thing, someone should write a book about it when we finally get the scoop. Or maybe someone should break the scoop in the form of a book or some long piece. And maybe it's Shai Davidi grinding away on it right now. But this is stupid. Like, what are we watching here? Now, when Alec Manoa was sent down the first time, he was, like, unplayably bad. And, yeah, it, it, the Blue Jays sent him down with no clear secondary option because they just couldn't withstand another start for him. When he went down this time, he was, like, not good. But considering the options, he would be a guy that, say, knock on wood, because the injury... Uh, worm has turned for this blue jays team but like say some one of the the five starters at the major league level like say the guy just coming off a tommy john surgery had to go down because he had an ouchie on his elbow it would have been alec manoa but for reasons that have yet to be explained he's decided to shut her down this is i know it's disappointing for a guy that expected to be one of the best pitchers, again, in the American League, who was one of the best pitchers for two straight years, who was a correspondent on MLB Network going into the season in Alec Manoa. But this does happen. Like, guys that had previous track records at the major league level get set down. You know what they do? They go to the minor leagues and they play. And then they wait for the next call up. I, I don't know what the hell's going on here with Alec Manoa. Somebody needs to explain it to me because it, at this point in the proceedings does not make a whole lot of sense. And and to John's point, I don't know how you can do anything but go into next season planning to be without Alec Manoa and him needing to, once again, prove himself at the minor league level before he's part of your rotation plans. And part of that is that you you have a pretty ready-built rotation coming back next year. I mean, you, you, Hunjin Ryu is going to leave in free agency. Unless, I mean, maybe resigns. Maybe that's... Something the Blue Jays are interested in. The other four guys are under contract. But yeah, this is this Alec Manoa thing is very bizarre. And I need a little bit more of an explanation than what I've received because usually guys get sent down to the trip to to the minor leagues to triple A and then they play in triple A and then they wait to be recalled. Alec Manoa's season is over, essentially. Whether the Blue Jays tell you or not, Alec Manoa's season is it's over, I'm telling you. Guy's been inactive for so long that there is, I can't see it, any scenario where he is relied upon to, to throw a pitch in earnest at the major league level. All right, when we come back, yeah, Canada's going to the Olympics next summer, but beyond that, now they're the second favorite to win it all at the FIBA World Cup of Basketball, and in fact, if they made it all the way to the finals, they would not have to go through the Americans until they met them in the finals. By the way, the Americans did, made mincemeat of Andrea Bargnani's Italy. Now, he d- didn't play for the Italian squad, but I'm sure he was rooting them on. They get pounded by like 40 points today. We'll talk to Doug Smith of the Toronto Star next. The fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. 2015, Mexico City against Venezuela. Bah. 2021, Victoria against the Czech Republic. Forget about it. It's all ancient history. It's all water under the bridge. After Canada, with their backs against the wall, after a massively disappointing loss against Brazil, must-win game on Sunday against the top-ranked FIBA nation in Spain, understanding that, yes, that's... Ranking was not maybe applicable to this version of the Spanish national team, but certainly plenty of talent on that team. Down 12 going into the fourth quarter, coming all the way back. And Canada now through to the quarterfinals of the the FIBA World Cup, but maybe more importantly, qualifying, punching their ticket to the 2024 Summer Olympics in Paris. First time they've qualified since the year 2000 in Sydney, Australia. Let's talk to Doug Smith of the Toronto Star. I'm sure... Still flabbergasted at, at what we saw on Sunday, Doug. That was that was otherworldly. That was a pretty impressive fourth quarter. That was uh, as good a Canadian performance in the clutch under really tough circumstances that I can remember. They were they were really really good in those last ten minutes. Is there anything comparable? Like I understand that the, I guess Canada had to qualify for those two thousand Olympics, and yeah. yeah, like is is that the the one comparable? Yeah, they beat Puerto Rico in Puerto Rico in like the winner get in, winner go home game, and that's a tough place to play. It wasn't a team locked with laden with NBA players. Steve Nash and I think Todd McCullough might have been on that team, be the only two. And they beat a very good Puerto Rico team in Puerto Rico. That would be that would be the comparable to this one. But that was again, that's twenty four years ago. That's a long, long time. Yeah. What what changes for the program now? And understanding that there's still a World Cup to be played, and and I know the rest of the world views that in more glowing terms than we do in North America, where we put the Olympics on this pedestal. Everybody else views this tournament as the be all end all when it comes to international basketball. But yeah, that they have accomplished this goal that was set out for them that they hadn't accomplished in in more than two decades. Like what 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 will change now for the program now that they have accomplished that? Well, Ben, I think it's a really good chance to to kind of leverage it financially, maybe get sponsors on board uh, that they know they're going. They have a year run up to Paris. It will allow them to schedule a very, I think, I would presume a very aggressive uh, exhibition series before they go to Paris. And it just, it, it eases everybody's mind. Like, you know what's coming. And the players can look forward to it. The organization can look forward to it with their sponsors and maybe get more people on board. And they can go and they can schedule a trip to Europe maybe next year before they go to Paris. Maybe they can get teams to come here and play home games in front of their own people uh, to set up that, that Olympic birth. So it just it just makes everything easier. And and for, for an organization that still has significant financial issues, it's a good deal if they can maybe make some money off this. Yeah, that'd be good. I mean, we're projecting ahead here. And again, there's still a whole World Cup to play. Like, Do you, do you think there will be yeah. everybody coming out of the woodwork to make themselves available for Paris? Well, I, I think they probably will, but I do think that Canada basketball asked for a commitment from a bunch of guys, and they got it. And I think Canada basketball also had to make a commitment to a bunch of guys. And if they committed, they would be part of this program through 24. And I know there's going to be all kinds of talk about Andrew Wiggins and Shaden Sharp and Andrew Lampard and Ben Matherin. Mm-hmm. But you know what? This group bought into what Nick Nurse and Mike Bartlett were selling in 2021, and I think they've earned the chance to get to see it through. Now, Injuries, retirements, stuff like that's going to happen probably next year. But the core group is this core group. And I don't think they need to get, I don't think they should get four or five new guys going into Paris. Because I think these guys bought in and, and said, yes, we're in, for, we're in for the long haul. And they need to be rewarded. I think Canada basketball can't go back on its word either.
Mm-hmm. Uh, and you mentioned Nick, and, and Jordy Fernandez has been one of the hot names uh, that, that have been written about throughout the course of this tournament and everybody believing he will one day be an NBA head coach. Um, and and I don't think that Nick, if he had his druthers, would uh, wish to not be at the helm of this team. And I think it was just circumstances was kind of, you know, had had little choice taking over a new program there in, in Philadelphia. Some 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 quotes are starting to filter out from him. I know you had a chance to to talk to him. How, how's Nick feeling about the success of the program that he 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 was a, a part of? And yeah, the heartbreak of twenty twenty one. He was on the bench. He's, he's very proud of them. He's very happy for for them. He's very proud of what he did to get him to this point. And it was he was a driver in this commitment thing in, in twenty twenty one after Victoria. They had a. a basically a summit in Vegas after that tournament. And they got a bunch of guys. They said, look, we need to buy in or not. Let us know, and we'll go forward from here. But you need to come in and say you're in. And that was the Knicks driver. And, and he got Shea and, and Nikhil Walker-Alexander. And he got uh, Dylan Brooks. And he got Jamal Murray. He got these guys to say, yeah, okay, we're in. And what I, I wrote this for tomorrow. It should be up pretty soon. It wasn't so much playing all the games was being around the program and going to the practices and going to the training camps and coming to the training camps and coming to the workouts and being around it. And yeah, we saw with Jamal and Corey Joseph and Kevin Pangos. They were in Toronto going into this tournament. Couldn't play for one reason or the other, but at least they showed up for that week. And I don't think you can all of a sudden say, well, you didn't play in uh, Jakarta and Manila, so you can't play in Paris, because I think that's just wrong. Yeah, and you know it's interesting because it was such a quick turnaround with the the head coach and Jordy Fernandez taking over when it when he had to as Nick bowed out. But I I wonder if the the continuity and the fact that all these players did know each other and were in this organization for for a number of years like did ease the transition and, uh, and for Jordy Fernandez and implementing whatever his his style of play is. Yeah, he did absolutely did. Ben, I think I I don't think we can lose sight of the fact that that Nate Mitchell and Nate Bjorkman are still on Jordy's staff. And they've been with Nick in this program for years. They coached it in all, in a lot of the windows. They coached it at the AmeriCup uh, two years ago in Brazil. They were, they've been around this team, this group for a long time. And that kind of continuity camp, it's huge. It's very, very important. The system didn't change. The way they played didn't change a lot. And their two familiar faces were there for the players. And Jordy's just done a marvelous job. I think he's done a great job. Um, getting the right guys in the right spots and getting this team to place that hasn't been in a quarter century almost. Dylan Brooks is a a polarizing figure, uh, I'd say. And, and yeah, people who were uninitiated got a, got a sense of, uh, of who he was (laughs) in in the playoffs last year against the Lakers. And yeah, the Grizzlies cut off terms or uh, separated themselves from him and and not great terms. Um, But then he has that incredible game, on Sunday, and he and SGA, I mean, the, the two catalysts down the stretch and him going 3-3 three three with the big three at the end of the, the fourth quarter there. Uh, as far as, like, just casual basketball fans in this country, has he, like, elevated himself in, in status to, I don't know, not not to the degree where, like, Shagilgis Alexander is getting legitimate MVP votes for a team that's below 500, but, like, on that second tier of, of Canadian star in the NBA. Oh, no question. But he, and the interesting thing that I thought with Dylan on Sunday was he teetered on the brink. He was going to go. He thought he might have been out of control in that second quarter. He, was, he got an um, unsportsmanlike foul. It was part of a seven-point play for Spain, seven-point possession for Spain. And he did he, he early foul trouble. 
It was uh, you didn't know which way he was going to go, and we saw which way he went. That his fourth quarter was remarkable. He guarded hard, didn't foul, made shots, um, made clutch shots. And then the three, what ninety seconds ago, a minute ago, was huge. And it might be it's as big a shot as Canada's made in this tournament. And I, I think the thing the fans should realize in Canada is that okay, this guy he plays with an edge. And we all know it, and we've all seen it in the NBA, and we saw it in this tournament. Mm-hmm. But when it counted, he controlled himself. He was composed, and, and he did what he had to do to win the game. And I think I, – I, I'm sure he's going to get booed in 28 cities in the NBA this year. <laughs> One of them better not be Toronto. No, I can't imagine. Anybody that's watched this tournament, like, yeah, you're nuts. Any, anybody that, that has paid attention to, to what he's meant to this team throughout this tournament is, is crazy to, to boo him. Like, maybe once the game starts. Like, that's acceptable, right, Doug? Like, intro, introductions, no boos, and then the game starts, he's allowed to be booed? I guess a little bit, but it's just to be appreciated for whatever. Now, who knows? It's going to come here one time with Houston, and everybody's going to be talking about Fred Van Vliet. Right. And Dylan's, Dylan's going to be like the other guy. <laughs> so he can maybe slide a little bit that way, but it's going to be a love-in for Fred, I, I would hope. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think I mean, NBA people as well have noticed what he's done. And I think that's going to help him uh, with his new team mm-hmm. and with, with uh, new teammates and, and sometimes a little bit with opponents. Mm-hmm. Um, so Slovenia up next tomorrow morning. They they got a pretty good player, Luka Doncic. Yeah, yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, he's he's pretty good. He's in the discussion with Shagil just Alexander for best player uh, at this tournament. And obviously, the Canadian team, I would think, has has more talent surrounding. Like, how how does Canada match up in this quarterfinal? Pretty well. Slovenia's really good. Like they got a, a seven footer named Mike Toby, their their big center. Who Canada hasn't seen a guy like him yet. That's going to be an interesting matchup. I don't know whether they got to dust off Jack Eady for a few minutes or not or how they can do this. But I do think what Canada's got going for it, it's got a lot of guys who can guard Luka. Mm. They can use Shea. They can use Dekeel. They can use Dort. They can use Dylan. They can use R.J. Barrett. They got a lot of different things to throw at Luka, who is very much the, the you know, leader. It's a good team, but he's the guy. He's, he's the head. And if you can limit him, then I think they can win. And I, I think they got enough different – ways to guard him that they probably can't you know it's 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 interesting like i i don't know if this even benefits a team that is so good when it, it's crunch time and it, and it's it's a pressure cooker like it was in the fourth quarter against spain but it does feel like as somebody who's watched the struggles over the last near decade in trying to get to the olympics now that they've they've gone over that hurdle it does feel like the pressure is off like do you, do you think that the players do sense that to to some degree and that there will be some you know, unshackling that, that takes place for uh, tomorrow's yeah. game? Yeah, they're playing with house money now. They accomplished their number one goal going in was to get to Paris. They did that. They can play basically free and easy now. Mm-hmm. They don't yeah, – they want to win, obviously. And I think they probably – they might be the second best – I think they are the second best team in the tournament behind the United States. In a one-game situation, they could absolutely beat the Americans. But I do think they can play free and not have to worry about anything because – what they wanted to do was get to Paris, and they got there. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to play, see them play tomorrow, but not loose, but I think comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think there will be a time? Because, like, as much as I, I understand intellectually that this basketball tournament means more than the Olympics to a lot of the players that are playing with it, like, I just, like, institutionally inside of me, I, it feels like the Olympics are more important. Do you think we'll get to a point here in North America? where it does feel like it does feel to so many of the other nations across the world that play basketball that the World Cup is is as important, if not more important, than the Olympics? 
Nah, we're brainwashed here. <laughs> so, so Olympics are bust. And the Olympics are they're a basketball tournament in the middle of a big sports event. Mm-hmm. And they get all the TV and they get all the attention. And they're every four years like the World Cup. But they are still the Olympics. And I think in North America, they're still going to be the thing. The thing. Unfortunately, because I, I personally think the World Cup as a basketball event mm-hmm. is a much more important and a much more uh, fair thing. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the Olympics are a 12-team tournament. They're busted up geographically. Like you got Japan, South Sudan, mm-hmm. Australia's in because because Australia's in all the time. All they have to do is beat New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it, it's it's always been easier to get to the World Cup and harder to win it. It's always been harder to get to the Olympics, but easier to win there. And it does feel like um, yeah. I was I was just going to say it does feel like FIBA's like on the on the same level of corruption as the IOC. I mean, I was looking at where the next World Cup is. Uh, just so happens it's in Qatar, like the, you know the, the the basketball loving nation of Qatar, Doug. That'll be exciting. Yeah, yeah, it'll be great, and I hope I'm still around to watch it. But I don't think I want to go there. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, FIBA's not the IOC, and it's certainly not FIFA. But it's that, those those are the three studios. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, whatever we can we can not think about that for a bit because Canada exactly. is is through to the the, the quarterfinals of of the World Cup, and yeah, the sky's the limit from here. Doug, uh, appreciate the time. Thanks. No problem, Ben, anytime. All right, it's Doug Smith of the Toronto Star, Canada against Slovenia tomorrow in a circumstance that is, I was going to say the best in all of, of of casual sports watching where it's nothing but upside. There is something, though, to have to having a ton of pressure and the potential of a disaster like we saw on Sunday. I got to say... What's better than feeling like the world is crumbling around you, that Canada is going to blow it again, and then we have to go into this uh, another last-chance tournament to make the Olympics after blowing an opportunity against Bruno Caboclo and Brazil to go from that potential reality to coming all the way back from 12 points down in a 10-minute fourth quarter with Dylan Brooks hitting a massive three, with Shea Gilgis-Alexander hitting the shot of the tournament, the step back to give this team the lead, and then icing the game with six free throws at the end of it. That's pretty good. But, like, maybe the second best thing is going into a game that has nothing but upside, because that would be disappointing to lose to Slovenia in the quarterfinals. But, yeah, they got Luka Doncic, and they also made the quarterfinals. They're a good team. And you're going to the Olympics. But, uh... Yeah, this is a team that clearly, on paper, can win it all at the World Cup. That some people have been talking about since they, they first stepped onto the floor at this tournament. All right. Coming up next, it's Blair and Barker as they get you set for yet another baseball game between the Blue Jays and a bad team. It's the Oakland A's, 2-3. Day game tomorrow, so I'll be off. I'll see you again on Thursday. This has been the Fan Drive Time. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590, The Fan.